Father, we thank you for your word. We thankful. We are so thankful that you have spoken, that these words are true, and that we can have certainty regarding the things that we have been taught. But let us say with Mary, let it be. Amen. Clive Staples Lewis, otherwise known as C.S. Lewis, uh, once said that the story of Christ is simply a true myth. He says it's a myth because it works on us in the same way other myths do. Except the stark difference of the fact that it really happened. It really happened. The gospel according to Luke is just that. It's this kind of true myth. All of these things happen just as surely as the events of this past week have happened. But the events are coming to us in the story of Luke in the form of a story that is so powerful that it may fool your senses into believing that it's actually all untrue, when in fact it is true. It made me think this week about uh, the story, the true story, of uh, something that happened in our Restoration Kids ministry not that long ago where one of our teachers was teaching the kids. Uh, and uh, at the end of it, uh, one of our kids said, I'm not sure who it is, one of the kids said to the, to the teacher, well, that's a great story, but it's just a story. Uh, I don't think it's true. And and uh, the teacher said back to one of our kids, well, you don't think it's true. Why don't you think it's true? And she said, well, because it's just a story. But of course, it's possible that even children can be so intoxicated by the story that it would be just only that. When in fact, it's an amazing truth. It actually really did happen. These are God's words to us. And so we can be confident to them, confident with them. And so looking back over the course of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that's where we looked at a couple weeks ago. You're reminded there that Luke, this a great physician that traveled with Paul, is uh, documenting eyewitnesses. He's actually going to ministers of the word. He's writing this carefully ordered account to Theophilus in order that he might have certainty regarding the things that he has been taught about Jesus, about the accomplishment of Christ. And then we moved into that story last week where we saw the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, these old barren, uh, Elizabeth being barren, they're old people that have no children. Uh, Zechariah the priest, they're promised by Gabriel the angel that they're going to have a child. And uh, that child is going to be John, the forerunner to Christ. So all of this is preparing us for the ministry of Jesus. And that leads us back into now the heart of the story. We now, today, will learn about the uh, preparation for the heart of the story, Jesus Christ, the King. So welcome to Christmas in September, everybody. Uh, here we are. We get to dive into these stories a little bit earlier. So, again, Luke's going to establish the plot line uh, today. The century-long hope of a forever king in the line of David is now on the cusp of being realized. That's what we're going to see. And we're going to see not only that, but we're also going to see how Mary will respond to this preparation And we're also going to see how we ought to respond to the news of the coming of Christ. So we see in verse 24 of chapter 1, Zechariah has gone home. We see that they do conceive a child. Uh, Elizabeth has conceived a child. And now we move forward in the story some six months. Six months from what we saw last week. Elizabeth has, she's now has a six-month-old baby in her womb. That brings us to Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. 
In just a couple lines, we have a myriad of things to consider. First off, Gabriel, the angel, is sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Galilee would be sort of like a region. Think of it almost like we might in America call it a county. Nazareth would be the city in that region. Except it's not so much a city as it is a town. It's a tiny little town. So we see in the store we've moved now from this metropolis of Jerusalem. And now we're moving to this tiny little insignificant city. So, we, so we've moved sort of like from New York City to like Possum Trot, Kentucky. That's sort of what happened here six months later. Nazareth is about 31 miles north of Jerusalem. Would have been about a three-day walk. They head up there. That's where the story is centering into. Nazareth had a reputation of being small and insignificant. Some of you know the story of Nathaniel, who's quoted as hearing about Jesus being from Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what that town is like. More than likely, Nazareth didn't have any more than a couple hundred people living in it. Most of them farmers. Uh, There would have been no buildings of any consequence. Not many trees. Some small, squatty homes dotted about the town. No governmental seat of any sort. It wasn't near any trade routes. So it probably had a very sleepy routine to it all. This little tiny town of Nazareth. And in that city, we find this couple. The author introduces us to this couple, Joseph and Mary. So let's take Joseph for them for, to begin with. We, we see that he is of the house and lineage of David. Now that's significant because Joseph, as we will see, is the legal father of the, of the child that would be born. So he's not the biological father, but he is the legal father of the child that's going to be born. And so his connections to the house of David are significant. And every Jewish reader would have known that right out of the gate. God made a promise to David and Israel had been waiting on the fulfillment of that promise for centuries. And so an angel being sent from God to some guy of the house of David, the reader would have known there would be this great anticipation. It would have been now sort of... Well, this is interesting. Now, Joseph is betrothed to a virgin. So betrothed, though he's sort of engaged of sorts, but betrothed is even more than engagement. It's like a legal declaration to be married. Um, Their being betrothed would have likely indicated that these two are quite young. Mary, in particular, probably in her teens. And the author includes that word virgin before we even get the name of the woman, Mary. Which indicates that the sexual status is apparently important to the story. The virgin that he is betrothed to or engaged to is named Mary. In the Hebrew, that would be called Miriam. Miriam, of course, is the sister of Moses from the book of Exodus, centuries before Mary's time. So just stop and think about that. The two women that we've been introduced to so far, Elizabeth, who is named from Aaron, the priest's wife from Exodus, and now we have Mary, named for Moses' sister's wife. These two names. Very significant names. A lot of interesting connections with just a few lines. But it is a bit of a strange beginning, is it? I mean, what should we expect from a sleepy little town in Nazareth, this young and otherwise ordinary couple, Joseph and Mary? What's going to happen to these two? In this small town. Let's take a look. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Well, unlike Zechariah, we don't know where Mary is when Gabriel visits her, appears to her. Perhaps she's home alone in a small thatched roof house that she lived in. Perhaps she was on her way back home from visiting a friend one evening. But there she appears to be alone. And Gabriel, the same angel that appeared to Daniel some years before, the same angel that appeared to Zechariah some six months before, now appears to Mary and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now the Roman Catholics have taken this sentence and they've made it a crucial part of their false doctrine of Mary. Instead of paying attention to the original words, the original Greek, they've used Latin to change the words of greetings favored one to hail Mary full of grace. Which constructs a bridge to the false worship of Mary. Something I'm confident Mary would have rejected. And so would the Christians of the next 1400 years. Because that prayer, hail Mary free, uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, pray for us sinners. That prayer is not constructed or mentioned any time for the next almost 1,500 years, right on the cusp of the Protestant Reformation. Instead, when we pay attention to the actual text, reading the storyteller's words, we see the words are, are even a bit perplexing to Mary herself. In verse 29, she was greatly troubled, not just because an angel showed up, Note there that it says she's perplexed by what sort of greeting this is. In other words, she's trying to put together what Gabriel meant when he said, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. You can imagine this would be jarring, right? What what, what does this mean? Favored one, the Lord is with you. Is this a good greeting? Is this a bad greeting? What's going on? What exactly did Gabriel mean? She's greatly troubled by this initial saying from Gabriel. What does this all mean? I can remember uh, one time, uh, actually, when my wife became pregnant with our first son, I called up my mom and she answered the door and I said, hey, mom, Andy's pregnant. And I just stopped talking. And she said, what? 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 Nathan, what? Are you serious? Nathan, what's going on? You're trying to get more information. She was very perplexed, right? The same is true in similar ways, except deeper, more meaningful ways to Mary. She's trying to understand this message. She's perplexed. She's troubled by it. Well, Mary, quite flustered, looks at Gabriel, who, by the way, would not have had wings. Right? He would not have had wings. He would have appeared likely as a man. She says back to him, trying to get information. And then uh, Gabriel says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, the Catholics got the one part of that translation right. That word favor does mean grace. It's that word charis. My niece is Brooklyn charis knight. Brooklyn grace knight. It means grace. Grace. So Gabriel is saying, Hello Mary, O graced one. The Lord is with you. And Mary sort of says, What's going on? And Gabriel says, Don't be afraid, for you have found grace with God. Grace with God. Pastor theologian John Calvin said, For a person is said to find favor, not when he has sought it, but when it has been freely offered to him. So Gabriel is saying here, God is showing you grace, Mary. He's with you. He's going to do something amazing through you freely. In other words, there's no immaculate conception here for Mary. Mary didn't earn this visit from God. From Gabriel, that is. 
It's not as though Mary saw, the Lord saw Mary, saw her sort of working in the fields of Nazareth, going, you know, she's out there sort of memorizing the word, you know, sharing the gospel with the farmers in the field in Nazareth, you know, going down, handing out tracts. And the Lord's like, look at there, she's a really impressive gal. I'll use her. That's not what happened. There was, again, no immaculate conception of Mary that happened before. God just shows this blessed, beautiful, godly woman grace. Choosing her. And then... We see how the Lord will show grace to Mary, this unmerited favor to Mary. And then Gabriel says in verse 31, she will conceive in her womb a son and she is to call his name Jesus. So as is evidence of the sending of an angel, this little boy, whoever it's going to be, was not just some ordinary little boy who was going to be birthed. This little boy was going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him a throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob and his kingdom will have no end. Now, guys, just imagine being Mary in this moment when you receive this news. This is a lot to process, right? So Mary sort of we might imagine her saying, so, all right, so. I'm going to have a baby and I'm going to give birth to the king of kings. And Gabriel, Gabriel's like, right. So, remember, teenage girl, not Mary. Mary says in response, verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? That's the third time we've heard that word, virgin. So we cannot deny the virgin birth here. So a couple things going on that we should notice when she says this. uh, How will this be since I am a virgin? First off, note Mary's assumption to, the un, to be unmarried, Mary assumes to be unmarried, only engaged, is not to do things that only married people should do. We have children in the room. Her assumption is, to be unmarried is to not do things that married people only do. She assumes, as should we, that to be unmarried means to not be intimate with Joseph. Secondly, Mary's question sounds a lot like Zechariah's, doesn't it? A number of you have asked me that question. Well, Zechariah, you remember Zechariah says, how is this going to work? Because my wife is, you know, barren. We're old. How's this going to work? Remember, he gets mute because he doubts God. Mary asks a how question as well. And yet he gets she gets more information. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is quite simple here. Mary is not seeking to doubt God in his word. Instead, she's trying to seek understanding. Not doubting, understanding. That's the difference. In essence, Mary is saying, since I'm a virgin, how's this going to work? Whereas Zechariah is saying, it can't work, so how are you going to do this? Difference. Whereas Zechariah had assumed that it was unworkable, we're too old for this, Mary needs more information, and she gets it in verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, the answer to Mary's question is that the way this is all going to go down is by the Holy Spirit overshadowing her and the power of the Most High in order to conceive a child that will therefore... Be holy. That is, he'll be the son of God. 
Now, guys, don't lose sight of that word therefore. So you want to circle that word. You want to underline that word. That's an important part. It looms large in this passage. Here, There's a reason it's what? You guys know this. It's therefore. Thank you. Somebody said it. You got, you're tracking with me. That's really important. Note the connection there. Right? Holy is to me set apart. So there's this connection between the Holy Spirit overshadowing and uh, in the power uh, overshadowing Mary in the power of the Most High and this child being holy. There's a connection between the two. So to be holy means to be set apart. That's what holy means. Set apart, that is, from creation. So think of it this way. Everything that we see around us, our own lives, the grass, the trees, everything, there was a day in which it was not. There was a day that it did not exist. That is not true of God. There was never a day in which God did not exist. Which is why he reveals himself for the first time in Exodus to Moses as Yahweh. I am. I've always existed. I, I am. I always have been. So therefore God is by nature holy. He's by nature set apart. He's by nature pure and un, uh, just un, without sin. And so holiness then is not an attribute of God's nature. It's the essence of his divinity. So in other words, God's love, an attribute is a holy love. God's power is a holy power. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. God is holy. It's who He is. Which is why when Isaiah looks into the throne room, he hears the angel saying what? Holy, holy, holy. Not love, love, love. Not justice, justice, justice. Holy, holy, holy. Because God is holy. It's part of who He is. That's who He is by nature. Therefore, back to the story, since he is the one that is bringing about the conception of the child, the child is then called holy because, of course, he is holy. He comes from God, and since he comes from God, he is holy because God is holy. So ducks give birth to ducks, dogs give birth to dogs, fish give birth to fish. God gives rise to holiness because God is holy. Now, to be clear, I want to make this super clear. Jesus is not created. He is created in the incarnational sense. But he is not created as an entity, as a person, as a being. God has always existed because he is Yahweh. He is I am. So Jesus, as opposed to what the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses teach us, our friends. No, Jesus has always existed. He is called the Lord. Mark 1.3 notes that he is Yahweh. I am. He's always existed. But here... We have that second person of the Trinity being created like all of creation out of nothing and becoming a baby in the womb of Mary. Therefore, this child is a God-man. He is fully God and fully man. And he is the God-man so as to reconcile man with God. He's the only one that can because of who he is. And what we have happening here, just look down at that passage again. I want you to notice this you'll note that we have happening here an illustration of the Trinity. An illustration of the Trinity. Christians have, from the beginning, believed that God is holy and that He is one God in three persons. Christians have always believed that. That there's one God, one thing that it means to God, one essence of God in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. And do you see them all working right there? Do you see it in the passage? You have the power of the Most High, that's the Father, And you have the Spirit overshadowing, giving rise to the Son. All three. Working together in this moment with Mary to accomplish one main thing. Holiness. Holiness. 
Holiness not for God Himself. Since God already is holy, nothing and no one can counteract His holiness. God is working through Mary so as to bring holiness to His people and ultimately to the world that He made. Guys, this is the most amazing thing about the story of the Gospel. This is absolutely stunning. As Christians, we believe that God so loves the world That God so longs for the holiness that He has enjoyed from eternity to enter into the world that the triune God so moves to take this radical step of entering into the story. Putting Himself in the story. He takes on flesh and dwells among His creation. The author enters the story. And that could not happen unless God was triune. You get rid of the Trinity, you lose the Gospel. And so here, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the one who married, who made Mary. Think about that. The one that made Mary now enters into Mary and becomes dependent on Mary. Is that amazing? Yeah, there's an answer to that. The answer is yes! Right? It's amazing. This is amazing. This is how badly God wants holiness for us. In fact, the reason why Mary is to name the boy Jesus is because that name signifies his mission. So kids, let me speak to you for a minute. This is common. I ask adults this all the time. People that have followed Jesus all the time. So kids, I ask them, if they love Jesus, they love Jesus, their lives have been changed by Jesus. Caleb, don't forget this. Here we go. And I'll ask them, what does Jesus mean? And guess what? Just act like they're not listening. A lot of times they don't know what it means. They don't know. So here, I'm going to tell you kids what Jesus means. You ready? Here it is. It means Savior. The name Jesus means Savior, Deliverer. That's what the name Jesus means. So His name, kids, His name indicates His mission. See, in a parallel account in the Gospel according to Matthew, He gives us this testimony of a conversation that Gabriel has with Joseph. And it's said of Mary there, Gabriel speaking to Joseph says in Matthew 1.21, She, Mary, will bear a son, And you will call his name Jesus for or because he will save. There's the word. He will save their people from their sins. So the eradication of sin and the bringing in of holiness is the heart of Jesus's mission to enter the story. That's why he's coming to destroy sin and its penalty and to bring in holiness. That's what he's about. So, all right, guys, let's, let this, let's get this really clear at the outset of our study in Luke. Make this so clear. The king of the kingdom is entering in the story for one prominent reason. It's not primarily to teach and to preach, though that is crucial to his ministry. He says in Mark 1.36 that he came to preach. It's not primarily to heal the sick, to care for the poor. Though these things are very important to his work. All of those things come behind the main purpose, which is to save people from their sin and usher in holiness in those people and eventually to the whole world. Jesus' name indicates His mission and His name means Savior. He's been sent by the Father in order to save people from their sin so that they who believe might know the holiness of God and therefore enjoy God forever in His presence. You guys remember that time when we were going back? For the people from Restoration, remember when we were studying the book of uh, Ephesians? Remember going way back to the beginning, Ephesians 1? Remember at the beginning, verse 3? Remember what Paul wrote there? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Christ 
that we might be what? Holy and blameless before Him. There it is. Paul's just reflecting what uh, God has taught us in the book of Luke. And I think it's also important to observe, I'm kind of making a bit of a pivot here in the sermon. Uh, So it's also important to observe uh, that if this is the price of our redemption, that if Jesus entering into the story, becoming a man, if that is the price of our redemption, I then want to ask the question, what might that indicate about the plight of our sin? If in order to be healed from our sin, it demanded that God became a man to atone for our sin and usher in holiness, what might that indicate about our condition apart from Jesus? You guys know this. Like when, when you got trouble at school and the teacher didn't show up, but mom and dad showed up. Right? You were in trouble. So the mere fact that Jesus is entering into the story would indicate that our condition is grave. Wilberforce says that if we don't understand how seriously ill we are, we won't pursue the remedy with the required diligence. If we are only slightly ill, we take an aspirin. If we are dying, we passionately pursue a cure, he says. Friends, far too many people understand that there's brokenness, that there's sin. But they only believe that it is only so bad that they just need to take a Tylenol. When in fact you need chemotherapy. You need a heart transplant. You're not just slightly broken friend. We're all fatally flawed. Dead. That's why the God of life had to enter into the story. Look at the description of this boy coming into the world. It clearly describes the worth of of this boy. Which describes the depth of our need. We've already noted that he is Jesus. Meaning Savior. That is to say that he's the greater Joshua from the Old Testament that leads us out of the slavery of Egypt, out of the slavery of our own sin, through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, into the promised land forever. He's the greater Savior. Verse 32, we see that he will be great. And of course, Jesus is, right? He is the great high priest. No one else is able to take us to God, ultimately, but him. He is the great prophet who not only speaks the words of God, He is the Word of God. He is the great King. All other kings bow the knee to this King. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one of whom Isaiah said in Isaiah 9-6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Thus the words there that the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. In other words, guys, he is the great king as is evidence of the eternality of his rule and the indestructibility of his kingdom. He is great. And thirdly, he will be called the son of the most high. This is what we've already seen. Jesus is of the father. He is holy. Therefore, he is of eternity. This name, Son of the Most High, is so vaunted that the demons, when they see Him, you'll see this in about six months when we get to Luke 8. Uh, and He come, and the, and the demons see Him. This, the, the demons see Him. That's what I'm telling you now. The demons will see Him, and they will call Him the Son of the Most High, and they will bow down at His feet because of this title, Son of the Most High. And fourthly, we see in verse 35 that He will be called Holy, the Son of God. We've already talked about that. 
But putting all of this together, we see the infinite worth of Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, the Son of the Most High. He has a throne that will never end. He is holy. He's the Son of God. And guys, that's just a few little titles in this short passage. We can look at other titles in other passages. In other places, Christ is said to be the Redeemer, the Healer, the Master, the Word, the Son of Man, the Lamb of God, the Light of the World, the Second and Better Adam, Emmanuel, God with us. I just wish that I could describe Him to you. How great He is. This, friends, is the one that had to come and rescue us. And this is the one that shows how grave our situation is and our sin. And this also shows how glorious its answer is. Beautiful, isn't it? We are fatally flawed and grace is what we need and grace is what is given in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So listen, we do not trust ourselves for salvation in any way. We trust this baby. We trust this child to save us. Him and Him alone for salvation. Uh, there was a time when I was walking down the National Archives, I was walking around there with a friend, and some Muslims had some material and they handed it out to me. And I took it and I saw it and I turned around and I began to engage one of them. And within minutes I was now speaking to a crowd of Muslims. And as I, I said something to them early on in the conversation that I say oftentimes when I'm talking to people about the gospel, I said to them, I'm a wicked man. I'm a wicked man. My heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Who could know it? And they quickly said back to me, yeah, 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 we are too. We are too. We are too. We're, we're wicked too. Which of course is in teaching with Islam. That's true. I said, yes, but there's a major difference between the two of us. You're trusting in yourself and your ability to obey the five pillars of Islam in order to be saved. I'm not trusting any of those things. I'm not trusting in anything in myself. I can't not only be 51% holy, I can't be 5% holy for 10 minutes. So the difference between us, friend, is that you're trusting in your ability to perform the law of religion enough that hopefully God will be merciful to you if you're good enough. And I'm just saying, I don't trust any of myself. I trust the Holy One to be faithful for me. I trust Jesus the Christ, the one that never sinned, the only one. I trust Him and Him alone to be saved. His faithful, righteous life was able to make an atonement for sin. That's why I can't die for your sin. I was just sharing this with him. That's why I can't die for your sin. You can't die for mine because you're holy. I'm, I'm, uh, you're not holy. I'm messed up. You're messed up. We're all messed up. Jesus was the only one that was never messed up. And so here this amazing thing happened. I was explaining this to him as we're going around and they were locked in, man. I had like literally by this point 15, 20 Muslims around me. It was great. They were very kind. And we're having this conversation. I said, so here's the thing. Here's the difference. Jesus the Christ, this cross, what Christians believe in is so important because there was this great exchange on the cross where Jesus, because he was faithful and just, the God man, the Holy One, therefore, when I trust him, this major exchange happens. His faithfulness, his righteousness gets transferred to me by grace through faith and my penalty for all of my wickedness gets transferred to him and gets paid for. Great exchange. Grace, right? And I know that that exchange happened because the third day he rose from the grave. So it reveals the resurrection proves that he can defeat the great enemy, sin, Satan, and death. And so I don't trust myself. I trust him. Totally. Not just 
mostly all. And I'm righteous. I'm saved. While simultaneously being a piece of work. Gospel. This indicates our condition that it required such a payment. The cost, friends, is Christ. Therefore, our condition is critical. We need grace. And thankfully, that's what God gives. God showed Mary grace by using her to bring about the Savior. And if you remember from last week, the forerunner to Jesus is John. Do you all remember what John means? The Lord is what? Gracious. God greets Mary and says she's found grace. God prepares the way for us by a man that is known as the Lord is gracious. And so all of this reveals that we are more sinful than we realize. But God is more powerful, more loving, and more gracious than we ever dared dream to imagine. All of that is seen, guys, in the giving of the Son, in the incarnation. That's why the virgin birth and all these things are so critical. All of this is seen in Mary's Son, Jesus. All of this is seen. The impossible is possible with God. The virgin birth prophesied by Isaiah hundreds of years before. Isaiah 7, 14, that there will be a virgin birth that becomes fulfilled. And because it does, we can know the possible that is otherwise impossible. But we're left with one more question before we close. How will Mary respond to all of this? How would you respond to this? She's been given a full explanation. She knows what's going to happen. Who's going, she knows that this, who this guy is going to be, this baby's going to be. How will she respond? And before I answer that question, I want to remind you of a few things of Mary's situation. Remember, she lives in a very small town. Everybody would have known her. Yes, it is a grace, a wonderful grace to be the mother of the Lord. Definitely. Mary was a godly woman for sure. But she's going to be pregnant without a husband. How do you think that would go over back then in that tiny little town? If Elizabeth received scorn for not having a child in her old age, can you imagine the kind of scorn that Mary would get for being pregnant without having a husband? And speaking of the husband, what's going to happen to him when she wakes up and tells him that news? Is he going to stay with her? Is she going to leave her? Is he going to leave her? If you were Joseph, what will you do? Uh... Angel visited me. I have a baby. Right. Right, Mary. Yeah. She might lose him. Let's also call to mind that we're talking about a very poor woman. Poor financially. She doesn't have many resources. She lives in a rural town and in a city that has very little economic prowess. When they made a sacrifice for Jesus at the temple, they offered two turtle doves. That would indicate that her and Joseph were of the lowest social and economic class. And add to all of this, as if this isn't enough, what Simeon would later say of her, that this Jesus was appointed for a sign that would pierce through her soul. And let's not forget, guys, Mary didn't ask for any of this. So what will this poor, unmarried teenage girl from a rural town say? What would you say? Would you want to sign up for public derision? Possibly losing your fiancé? Taking on a child while in poverty? Knowing that that child would grow up to deeply pierce your soul? How would you respond to Gabriel? How would you respond to God? 
Well, behold, friends, what is in my estimation one of the most amazing responses in the entire corpus of Scripture. Look at verse 38. Here's her response. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I've meditated and chewed on that sentence for years. I'm not, I'm not there yet. Can I just be honest with you? I'm not there. I want to be. I think right now I've been like a lot like Moses. I think you can find somebody else for this thing. Right? Teenage, poor girl. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary not only believes, she believes the impossible. And not only does she believe the impossible, she does so at great cost to herself. Let it be. I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever needs to be done, that's what I'll do. When we look back over the annals of biblical history, we find the story of God littered with great heroes of the faith that doubted at significant moments. Abraham questioned the promise of the Lord to give him children in his old age. As I mentioned, Moses doubted when the Lord called upon him to lead his people out of Egypt. After seeing the Lord deliver him, Elijah feared Jezebel and fled. David doubted the love of God when he was being pursued by his son. Zechariah doubted God could bring him a son at his old age. So when we are presented with what might be considered the greatest task ever announced to humanity, Mary says, let it be. Let it happen. I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I can't help but wonder if Mary slept a wink that night. She's probably nervous to wake up and speak to Joseph the next day. I'm sure her mind wandered to this overshadowing. Like, what? how's that going to happen? Surely she thought about what it was going to mean to raise the king of kings. What was that going to be like? This poor, likely teenage girl from a tiny rural town, an impressive woman by given a lot of grace. And yet, beloved, this is all of our response to the gospel. This is to be our response as well. The ministry of Mary in giving the birth to Jesus, in giving birth to Jesus, that is unique, but the faith that she has in the Lord is not. Her faith is the faith of all those that have signed up to follow King Jesus. See, in the eyes of the world, we are, as Christians, otherwise unimpressive people. Like Mary, we're insignificant. Maybe we're not poor, but we're not noticed. We may not be from Nazareth, but none of us are of noble birth. And while none of us have been told to raise Jesus, we have all heard His word, and we have all been invited to respond to it. The question is, have everybody in this room responded to it as Mary did? Have all of us in this room, in response to the word of the Lord, in response to Christ as King, have we all said, let it be. I'm your servant. Let the word go forth. I'll submit to it. Have we? And friend, if you have not, if you've not trusted in Christ as King and Lord, I would invite you to do so today. As we've seen, Jesus is is the Lord's provision for your deepest problem. Your sin problem can never be dealt with by mere intellectual assent or by mere religiosity. It can't work that way. Your sin problem and mine require Jesus the Great 
to come and take on flesh, die for your sin, and raise for your justification. This is how grave your situation is. And this is how gracious God is. He's made a way for you to be holy. There's no other way. But friend, I want you to know, if you're considering following Jesus, you heard Dan testify to that last week. I mean, you think about other people, the testimonies we've heard the last couple weeks in the baptisms. If you choose to do that, I want to be honest with you about something. That it is sweet, it is beautiful, it is awesome. But there is a cost. It will cost you acceptance from the world. It will cost you comfort and convenience. It will cost you everything. But listen, Jesus is not calling you to do something that He hasn't already done. He doesn't call you or Mary to do anything He wasn't willing to do Himself. See, Jesus humbled Himself by becoming a man. Go read Philippians 2 this afternoon. He humbled himself by becoming a man. He was rejected by the world that he made for himself. And he humbled himself to the point of death. And not only that, but death on a cruel cross in order to save those that believe. His resurrection reveals, friend, that the impossible is possible with God. You can be saved. Sinners can be made into saints. All of us. Not by anything that we do, but what he has done. And so the offer is extended. The word has been spoken. What will you say? What will you say? Well, my prayer for you, friend, is that you will say with Mary, let it be. I am the Lord's servant. God's given me grace. Let it be to me according to your word. That's my prayer for you, that you would respond that way. And if you desire to respond that way, I'm going to be here and I'd love for you to come and tell me by just saying, let it be. I'll know what to do from there. But for the rest of us that have already responded and said, I am the Lord's servant. Let me read for you a truth that is absolutely overwhelming. Luke eleven twenty seven and 28. Well down in the story, there's this quote where a woman says in the crowd, sees Jesus, says a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. Referencing right Mary. But he, that's Jesus, said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, beloved, it it is at least as much, maybe more, blessed to have Christ in your heart than it is to have Him in the womb. And so, beloved, resign yourself today to say back to the Lord, With Mary, let it be. Let it be. Let it be to me according to your word. I am the Lord's servant. So friends, life came at Mary fast. Right? And so it is with us. We have our own sort of moments with Gabriel where we are given some news that is oftentimes unwelcome. Right? Some of you all have been given news that just this week. Understand, friends, these things are not rude intrusions by God. But instead, these are divine appointments for you. That you might walk out Mary's ministry, Christ's ministry, saying, let it be to me according to your word. And so friend, when you are tempted to give up, don't forget to look at the one that you follow. The one that is most high, the Holy One, the Son of God, the one that reigns now and forevermore. Don't grow weary, Christian. But instead, just say, let it be. If it means the magnification of Christ in my life and in this city and my family, let it be. That's what it means. If I have to walk this valley, 
for Christ to be exalted, for me to trust him, that the world might know that he's worth it, then let it be. May that be our decree. We are his happy servants, and while we may be like Mary on the outskirts of town, living in the shadows of the world, listen, we are squarely set in the plan of redemption. And because of that, we can be sure that his kingdom that will never end will be ours forever. And so say with Mary, beloved, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And may we help each other on through those valleys. We need the Lord's help. We need grace. So let's ask him for it. God, we need grace. We pray you'd give it to us. As you showed grace to Mary to have her say, let it be. Show grace to us so that as life comes against us in ways that are so difficult, may we have grace to believe and say, let it be. I'm your servant. Whatever your word says, that's what I want to do. Let it be. May that be our cry because we see what you have done to rescue us. We pray in Jesus' name.